0: Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here, wanting to welcome you to my series on Ruth, The Big Little Love Story. We're going through the Cinderella story of the Old Testament in six weeks with two amazing characters, Ruth, a Moabite gal who was widowed, Boaz, an older, wealthy, affluent, single guy, they fall in love, get a little bad counsel from a gal named Naomi, and God works it all out so they can get married, have a baby named Obed, and through him would come another guy you might've heard about, his name is Jesus. You're gonna love this love story, and I thank you for your prayers, I thank you for your support and your gift of any amount as we get God's word out to God's whole world. Thanks a bunch, Pastor Mark out. If you've got your Bible, turn to uh, Ruth chapter two. We're in a great book of the Bible, the book of Ruth. And while you're finding your place in Ruth chapter two, how many of you are single? Raise your hand. Single people, single people, single Okay, you guys can meet after service. And I want you to know something. For the first time in the nation's history, you all are the majority. How many of you are married folks like I am? We are now the minority. For the first time in the nation's history, the majority of adults are single, not married. And so when we pick up this great love story of Ruth, it's a Cinderella story of the Old Testament. We find that it is incredibly timely, though it's a 3,000 year old book of the Bible, it speaks absolutely to the circumstances in which the majority of people find themselves today. So those who are sort of the central characters in the book include Naomi, uh, who is an older woman who is widowed and she's single, a guy named Boaz you're gonna meet today, he's a great guy and he's single, and a gal named Ruth. And so let me catch you up on this story. And for those of you who are single, I hope it's insightful, I hope it's encouraging, I hope it's helpful. For those of us who are married, this is an opportunity for us to learn Learn from the example of some single people in the Bible. And Lord knows that the single people in the church have sat through lots of married sermons, right? So we get to return the favor a little bit today. Well, the story begins in Ruth chapter one, and I'll catch you up to speed. There is a famine, failure, funerals, and faith. So a famine hits this nation of Israel and the town of Bethlehem, and it literally means the house of bread. So famine hits a place that usually God provides, but he's withholding his provision as an act of judgment for the rebellion and sin of his people. There's a family there led by a guy named Elimelech, and he's got a, a wife named Naomi, two sons named Malon and Killer. Like I told you, good, strong Klingon names. And these uh, two boys are not that great. And this guy's not that great. They're all kind of a failure. And what they decide to do is to move their family all the way to a place called Moab. Moab is not God's people, not God's presence, not God's place. That's not where they're supposed to be. They go there. They're there for 10 years. The two boys, Malon and Kilion, they pick unbelieving, foreign godless, pagan women as their wives. God withholds the blessing of children. As a result, they're barren. And then lo and behold, they moved so that they would not die. And exactly what they feared would happen, happened. They died. So Elimelech, the father dies. Malon and Kileon, the two sons die. So now there's a famine. These men have failed. Now there are funerals and we are left with three broken, widowed women. Naomi, the mother-in-law, her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And the question then is, what are these poor women going to do? Because the men didn't have any plan for them. There's no provision for them. And so what Naomi decides to do is to go back to God's presence and to God's people to go back to Bethlehem. So Orpah goes back to her gods and her religion and her family. Uh, Ruth, the other uh, daughter-in-law has a conversion experience. It says, I'm gonna go with you to be with God's people in God's presence. And the women make the 30, 40, 50 mile journey, probably on foot, homeless, broke, bankrupt, just absolutely grieving widows, nothing in their hand, a bit of faith in their heart, headed back toward Bethlehem on this epic faith adventure. And that's where we pick up the story that they've had a a necessary ending, we learned last week with Moab, and now they're heading toward Bethlehem, hoping for a new beginning. And so we pick up the story regarding safe people in chapter two, beginning in verse one. Now Naomi, okay, so that's the older woman, the the mother-in-law, she's the widow had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech was her husband, whose name was Boaz. Good, strong name, amen? Let's just say it, man. On the count of three, let's all say Boaz. One, two, three, Boaz. Boaz. His name literally means strong man. It's just a good, strong name. We like that name. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, "'Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain "'after him uh, in whose sight I shall find favor.'" And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went out and gleaned in the field of the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. For those of you who are note takers, we're going to look at prayer, providence, and prudence right here in this section. The first is prayer. In chapter one, Naomi prayed this prayer in verses eight and nine. She prayed for Ruth. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and with the dead. The Lord grant that you might find rest. Naomi prayed in chapter one for Ruth that God would take care of her. And here in chapter two, we see that her prayer is beginning to be answered. Pray, because God hears and answers prayer. Chapter one, there is a prayer. Chapter two is the beginning of the answering of that prayer by God. So we see that prayer is effective, that prayer works, and it encourages us to be praying, especially when we're in the midst of dire circumstances as they are. The second thing that we see is God's providence. I love how it says, uh, uh, she happened she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. You see that? That's, that's a Hebrew funny. That's a little tongue in cheek. This is God's providence. In the Hebrew, it literally means, uh, it just so happened as luck would happen, as chance would occur. Oh, lucky them. How many of you have said something like, I was so lucky. No, you were so blessed. And And the way that God works in the Bible is he has two proverbial hands. Um, One is the hand of miracle and this hand is visible, you see it. This is when an angel shows up or God's talking through a burning bush or he parts the Red Sea or a dead guy comes back to life. It's a supernatural, miraculous, inexplicable, obvious, evident work of God. That's God's visible hand of miracle. God also works through his invisible hand of providence. And this is where an angel doesn't speak and a miracle doesn't happen, but God provides through circumstance because we don't believe necessarily in just circumstance, happenstance, or chance. We believe in God's providence. We believe that sometimes God puts us in a place and that's where we're supposed to be. And God introduces us to a person and that's how we're supposed to meet and that God has a way of organizing the affairs of our life. Now, oftentimes we don't see that through the windshield when we're looking toward the future, but we see that rather in the rearview mirror. As we look back on life, we go, huh? I don't think that was an accident that I met them. I think that was God's providence. I don't think that that's an accident that I ended up in that place. I don't think it's an accident that I got that job. I don't think it is an accident that I went to school with those people. There's, there's circumstances that God ordained in weaving life together. How many of you have experienced that? And here it's it sort of tongue in cheek says, oh, lucky them as fate would have it. And, and it's God's wink, wink. He's involved. Some of you would wonder in your times of need or struggle or crisis or longing or hurt, God, where are you? What are you doing? And you'd understand he's got this second hand and he could be working in less obvious ways, but he's still working. He's still working. He's still working. For Grace and I, it comes to mind. I was a non-Christian kid sitting in high school, taking a class and this gal sits in front of me who is actually a grade older than me. And I get to know her and she is, good friends with grace and introduces the two of us. I would say that was God's providence, that God brought a mutual friend so that we might meet one another. I don't think that was an accident of all the classes we could have taken and all the seats we could have sat in that we got sat next to one another so that I could meet my wife. There are ways that God works out circumstances and that is exactly what he's doing here. So these two women, they literally show up in Bethlehem and this is the equivalent of they're at the food bank Right, at least Ruth is at the food bank and it just so happens that the food bank is run by a guy who is somehow a distant relative of her dead husband, meaning that he might even have some legal obligation to tend to her and to care for her and to provide for her. And of all the food banks she could have ended up at, she ended up at the right one. Oh, lucky for her. That's God's providence. And the third thing we see is we see prudence. We see that Ruth is a model for young women. So you young women, I want you to see Ruth as, a, as an exemplary woman. Uh, for the first time in our nation's history, as I said, the majority of people who are adults are single. Statistically, when you hit your 20s, if you grew up in church, what do you do? You leave church. You literally walk away from God's presence and God's people. And what you tend to do then, statistically in our culture, you date, or I like to say date, relate, and fornicate, then you move in with somebody Right? Cohabitation, so the majority of singles cohabitate at some point in their life and most do not return to church and to relationship with God's people. And because it's so common in our culture, we think it's normative and it's okay. Yet we see in this story an alternative way and and Ruth is really a woman who gives us a great example. She is widowed, Um, she has no children, she's from the wrong People group, she comes from a group of people that are descended from Lot. Their whole family line comes from incest between a father and a daughter. So this is that side of the family we don't talk about. We don't see at Christmas. These are the ones that we don't really put in the photo. We're not super proud of, right? We tell the kids, don't, don't Google that side of the family. You know, there's a real problem over there. So she comes from the wrong background spiritually. They worship the false god, Chemosh. She comes from the wrong family. Historically, they descend from Lot. She comes from the wrong nation. She's not a virgin, which was a big deal in that culture. She's barren, has no children. Furthermore, she is bankrupt and she is homeless and she is at the food bank. So her life is not going well, amen? All of you, I want you to just feel like my life's going pretty good compared to Ruth's. I feel pretty good about my circumstances. Now a woman in that situation, in that culture, it could be very tempting for her to do some things that are ungodly and sinful. Uh, Sometimes these kinds of women, even in our own culture, they're finding themselves in bad relationships so that they can move in with a guy so that they at least have a roof over their head. You find sometimes that they're pursuing a bad relationship with those in business in an effort to get a job, or sometimes they're even forced into prostitution. The, the, the odds of this kind of woman walking in holiness are low because the circumstances are so difficult. Yet here's what we see in, in this woman, uh, she's holy. She's not dating, she's not sleeping around, she's not moving in with the guys, she's, you know, she's not doing anything unholy. She's doing that which is godly. Number two, she's a good friend. She's only got really one friend, that's Naomi. And Naomi's not a real pleasant person to be with. We looked in chapter one, her name means sweetness or pleasant, and after hardship befalls her, she legally changes her name to bitter. You know you're really not in a good place when you show up at church or work or an event and you give you a name tag and with a Sharpie you get to write your name on it, bitter, with a frowny face, That's that's what she does. So, so she's got, Ruth has got one friend, Naomi, who's a bitter older woman, but Ruth is a good friend to Naomi. So she's a holy woman. She's a good friend. Uh, number three, she works really hard. You'll see that in a moment. And number four, she has faith. She has faith. And it's not a, pact, a passive faith where she just sits there and says, Lord, provide. It's an active faith. For those of you who don't have a job, you trust in God to provide you a job. If you're out searching for a job, that's active faith. If you're a single man and you're hoping to get married and you want God to provide you a wife, you're not just sitting at home saying, Lord, have her deliver pizza so I can marry her. Um, you're out actively seeking a woman, amen? And so faith is active. And this is what I love, um, this little statement here. Um, she says, I shall find what? Favor, that's, that's, an, that's a word for grace. Here's what she's saying. God will not fail me, God will not forsake me, God will favor me, I need to go find his favor. She's out searching for God's provision in her life. She trusts that God is sovereign, she trusts that God is good, she trusts that God has a future and a plan and a hope and an opportunity for her. She has no idea what that looks like, but she's gonna go find it. This is like an Easter egg hunt, God's got an egg out there for me and she's gonna go find that egg, that's what she's doing. I was talking to a friend of mine. He's a pastor some years ago, and he's a very wise man. I won't name drop or anything, but he gave me some insight that was really helpful. And he said, you know, most people tend to think of their life in terms of good seasons and bad seasons. And when you're in the good season, you try and extend it as long as you can. You hope that the bad season doesn't come for a while. When the bad season comes, you just try to kind of grin and bear it and get through it so that you can get to the good season. How many of you, if you're honest, you say, I kind of see my life that way, good seasons and bad seasons. And he says, you know, he said, I see life differently. I see life almost like two parallel train tracks. In every season of life, there's good and bad and they're side by side together. I thought that's a good insight. How many of you tend to be the more optimist you look over at the good side, you say, well, God's doing a lot right now and I'm really hopeful and encouraged. How many of you are more the pessimists? You're puddle glum, Eeyore, it'll never work. It'll, you know, you're, that, you're always looking at the downside. You're the guy with a critical eye. You're like, well, as soon as these things get straightened out, it'll be a good season. And you never really get to enjoy a good season because there's always something that is crooked or unstraightened or a problem in a fallen world. And what I love about Ruth she really is a realist, she's not just a pessimist, she's not just an optimist, she's a realist. She's looking at her life and over on the bad side, what are the bad things that are in her life? Well, my husband died, just had a funeral. I have no children, so I'm perhaps even barren. I only have one friend, it's a bitter old mother-in-law. So whatever future, has for me, I'm taking her with me, right? True or false, ladies, this might hurt your dating prospects, right? If we go on ChristianMingle.com and we see you and a very angry old woman and you're a package deal, (laughs) most guys are not gonna click, right? Mm, Tell me more, tell me about the angry old woman in the background who's, you know. (laughs) She could look at the bad part, furthermore, she's a Moabite. Well, that's not good. Uh, What is your previous religion? Well, I was, very good at worshiping the demon God, Chemosh. And so are my people. Um, f- how's your income? I'm homeless. Where do you live? Well, you can't send me mail. I am homeless. I live in a tent. Uh, furthermore, I'm very, very hungry. And uh, if you want to meet me and my uh, bitter mother-in-law, maybe you could run into us at the food bank. So true or false, she's got some things in her life we could put in the category of bad. True or False. True, okay, thank you. Didn't mean to wake you up, but thanks for participating. Okay, now that being said, she's got some things in her life that are bad, but here's what she says. She says, you know what? There's nothing really that good in my life right now. But I know there will be, and I'm gonna go find it. That's faith. Faith doesn't say, everything's great. When God closes a window, he opens a door, and your setback is the beginning of your comeback. That's not it, okay? Okay. That's, some of you are like, don't say it like that. No, okay. I'm just, you can tell me, I'm I'm the guy with a critical eye. So I kind of get frustrated. People are like, oh, it's all gonna get better. It's gonna be better. If God has something for you, it's gonna be better than what you had before. Maybe, maybe not. But here's what she does say. Things are hard. God is good. He has not forsaken me. He will not fail me. He will favor me. I will find him. That's faith. That's faith. She's not denying the hardship of her circumstances, but she is trusting in the character of her God. And I love that she just says that, I shall find favor. I married a woman with a gift of faith who's like that. And it's helpful. Even when we thought of moving here, right, the family thought, okay, let's move to Arizona where we don't know anyone and we don't have anything we feel like God is calling us. my wife is like, this'll be great. We get to go see the the adventure that God has for us. I'm thinking, this is crazy. She's like, no, God's gonna bless us and take care of us. And it'll be so exciting to see how he provides. And she was right. And God's provided, provided a building and some really nice people and a great opportunity and God provided. But you don't know until you go searching. You don't know until you start moving. You don't know unless you start acting. And what I love about Ruth, she's a brand new Christian, but she's a bold Christian. She loves the God of the Bible. She's waiting for the coming of Jesus. That's who her hope and faith and trust is in. And we see this great faith in this great woman. And she says, I will find favor. There is hope for me. There's a plan for me. There's grace for me. There's provision for me. It's out there and I'm gonna go find it. I love that about her. So that is Ruth, this uh, lovely lady, and then we meet this great guy named Boaz. And behold. Da, 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 da. Here they go. They finally meet. The great love story. Here he comes. Boaz. I just love the name. Came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, "These are the guys who work for his company. The Lord be with you." And they answered, "The Lord bless you." So all of a sudden they just have a little Praise-a-thon right there in the fields, right? How many of you, when you walk into work tomorrow, your boss will not walk in and say, may the Lord bless you. And everyone pops up like gophers out of a hole out of their cubicle. (laughs) And the Lord bless you, da, 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 da. All right, this is a little worship here at their business. The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Who's responsible for this young woman? She's all by herself. And the servant who was in charge of the reaper's answer, she is the young Moabite woman. That's still her identity. Sadly, she's the Moabite, wrong religion, wrong people, wrong nation. Yeah, she's, she's kind of the oddball. Remember that game in Sesame Street, they'd have the four squares, which kid isn't like the other, which kid doesn't belong? That's Ruth. Um, who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Let me explain gleaning. Gleaning was a provision that God had in the Old Testament in places like Leviticus for the poor. So God has a heart for the poor. God loves the poor and God's people are to be generous toward the poor. But rather than just giving them money or provision, they had to work and part of this was so that they would have their own dignity. And so let's say you were someone who had a field as Boaz does, he's a business leader and he's got a field and he would go out into the field with his workers and his workers would harvest and then that would provide his income. So so what we're looking at here is his inventory. And what God wanted them to do was to leave the margins for the marginalized. So the margins are for the marginalized. And if you're poor, and you are struggling to put food on the table. How many of you have been there or are there? I grew up there. My dad was a union drywaller and my dad would literally hang sheetrock to feed five kids until he broke his back. There were times that my dad would live at the job site, sleep in his truck or sleep on the sheetrock, work as many hours as he could because he was paid by the hour and send all the money home to my mom and to us five kids. And so there were times that things were very, very, very lean for us If you grow up poor, you understand what it's like to be down to the point where there's not a lot of food left. I can still remember as a little boy, um, sometimes I was the only one in the family that was allowed to eat meat as the firstborn child before the other kids were born because there wasn't enough meat for my parents and they would make that sacrifice that I could have protein in my diet as a little guy. And I didn't understand how difficult and dire sometimes things were when I was a little kid. And sometimes people would be generous toward us and would help us, especially when my dad was out of town working to help us make ends meet. So, here, the way that it works is if you're poor and you're hungry, you can find one of God's people, and their business has a percentage of their profits set aside so you can literally eat into their profits. Literally eat into their profits. And so, the margins are left for the marginalized. So what, what what Ruth knows is she knows, okay, God has a heart for people like me, and God's people make provision for people like me. If I can find one of God's people, they'll, they'll find God's provision. And so in the Old Testament, you would give a 10% tithe, tithe literally means a tenth, and that would go to the priesthood and to the ministry. And then beyond that, you would have feasts and festivals and celebrations and you would have gleanings and offerings for the poor. So your total tithe was around roughly, give or take, about 25%. And so what Boaz is showing here is he's showing God's heart of generosity, especially toward the poor. And so he's giving his 10% to the Lord. He's funding the other things that are required. He's paying a decent wage to his employees. And he is literally allowing people like Ruth to come and eat into his profits. This is not unlike someone who owns a grocery store in our day, who's a believer and loves the God of the Bible. And they meet someone who's a brand new Christian. Maybe it's a single mom and she's down on her luck and she can't afford groceries. And he tells her, you come to my store anytime you want, you fill up your cart with whatever you like. And I will tell all of those running the check stands on their way out they're to help you load the groceries in the cart or in the car rather, and and we don't charge you. Groceries here are free for you. I love you, God loves you. I'm one of God's people. And I factored this into the percentages of my business that I might be generous toward you because that's God's heart toward you. It's beautiful, right? Here's what I want you to see, that material provision is a spiritual matter. Material provision is a spiritual matter. This is where Jesus tells us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, give us our daily bread. We're to pray for material provision. Some people are so spiritual that they don't really understand the importance of the material. Right, that, that we need to eat, we need water to drink, we need a place to sleep. There is material provision that a human being needs to live and flourish. And God doesn't just care about the immaterial soul, he cares about the whole person, including the material body. And so material provision is a spiritual matter. Material provision is a spiritual matter. And it's a tangible demonstration of God's grace. It's a gift. And so he understands that God has been gracious to him and he is going to be, gracious toward her. Let's talk a little bit about Boaz. For those of you men, I want you to see Boaz as a good example of a godly man. Uh, There's lots of sinners in the Bible and nobody's perfect, but there are some people who do love and serve the Lord and they're exemplary. Ruth is a great example for all women, especially for young women, particularly single women. Boaz is a great example for old men, especially and particularly single men. And his his name literally means strong man, strong. And what we've seen so far in the book is that the other men, Elimelech, the father, Malon and Kilion, his sons, they were not strong men. Uh, Furthermore, we read that as a guy named Solomon builds the temple later, one of the pillars holding up the temple has Boaz's name on it because he's a guy like that. He can carry a load. You can depend on him. He's solid, he's strong. That's the kind of man that he is. And it says that he is a worthy man. So I looked at all the places in the Bible that it uses that sort of language and that little bit of a nickname. And it it refers to a man of wealth, a man of war and a man of wherewithal. So man of wealth means he knows how to make money. He knows how to make money. If if you're one of God's men, it's good for you to learn how to make money. It's good for you to learn how to make money and then be generous with it as he was generous. Number two, it's a man of war. When conflict or harm comes or innocent people are in danger, he's the guy who gets in the way, right? He's the guy who will protect, who will defend women, children, the hurting, the marginalized, those in need, right? If there's gonna be a conflict, and it's injustice that's going to happen, he's going to get himself in the middle. Number three, he's a man of wherewithal. He, gets, he simply gets stuff done. You'll see this as the book finds itself moving into the future, that there are a lot of complications on how to love and serve Ruth and Naomi, and he's a man of wherewithal. He figures out how to get it done. Right, so if you want to be a man like Boaz, it's knowing what to do, with your wealth, it's knowing how to protect and defend those who are in harm's way, and it's figuring out how to get things done. And he's such a godly man. What what happens in uh, the Bible, in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, there's this little blessing that gets sung and prayed at the end of the Old Testament equivalent of the church services, and the priest, the pastor, would get up and say, you know, may the Lord bless you. And all the people would say, and the Lord may bless you. And what we see here, this is what's happening at Boaz's business. He's acting like a priest. I want you to know that if you have a company, you may be the closest thing that your employees have to a pastor. If you have a company, you may be the closest thing that your people have to a pastor. You may be the only Christian they know, and you may get a lot more time with them than their pastor does. So if you love them, if you serve them, if you pray for them, if you bless them, if you're you know responsible toward them, they're going to see you not just as a business leader, but as a spiritual leader as well. And that's what his employees see, that's what they see. So, you know, he shows up, Uh, he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And then they call back, the Lord bless you. This is literally how you would close an Old Testament church service. So for those of you who are in business, maybe you're in management, maybe you're in leadership, maybe you've got a small business, maybe you run your own company, Do you see what you're doing as a spiritual matter? Do you see that the income that the business provides ultimately belongs to the Lord, and that ultimately you are to take care of your employees honorably, you're to be good steward of the resources that God has entrusted to you, you're to tithe and also be generous toward the poor. And I believe one of the reasons that his business is going to flourish and you'll see this in the ensuing chapters is because he is doing business in a way that honors and glorifies God and loves people. Because here's the truth. You either love money and use people or you love people and use money. He's not a man who is loving money and using people. Otherwise he'd never be generous toward Ruth. He's a man who loves people and uses money to demonstrate his love for them. And so he's not a priest, he's not a prophet, he's not a pastor, he's a business leader. Some of you are here and you would ask, well, I hear this oftentimes from people who are in business. Man, I'm in business, I really wish I was in ministry. You're in ministry. You are in ministry. That business belongs to the Lord. That income stream belongs to the Lord. Those employees and their families are loved by the Lord. You were sent by the Lord and you may be the closest thing that they have to a pastor. And what the world does not need is more broke pastors that don't understand business, it needs more business leaders that love and serve the Lord in the marketplace, amen? amen. That's what is needed. That is what is needed. And so that is his, that is his situation. Now, let me hit something quickly. There's a, there's a few categories that I wanna give you to sort of look at all of these issues of economics in the Bible. When it comes to finances and wealth, sadly, politically, there's a lot of conflict because we tend to think in two categories, the rich, and the poor, okay? And if you're rich, you think that the rich people are really good and the poor people are really bad. And if you're poor, hmm, you just kind of think the opposite, that the poor people are very good and the rich people are very bad, and it leads to class conflict and class war, and it works itself out with political infighting depending upon which party you prefer. The Bible is more robust in its categories. It has not two categories, but four. There are righteous rich, and righteous poor, unrighteous rich and unrighteous poor. Righteous rich are people who know, love, serve the Lord and they make a lot of money. True or false, that's Boaz. He's got employees and he's got margin. So he's righteous, he loves and serves the Lord and he's pretty rich. Number two, there are people who are unrighteous, excuse me, they are righteous and poor. So righteous and rich, and then righteous and poor. They love and serve the Lord. They're just broke. True or false, that's Ruth. She's very godly and homeless, right? Her savior is gonna come. He's gonna be perfect and homeless. So Boaz is righteous and rich. Ruth is righteous and poor. The Bible has two more categories, people who are unrighteous and rich. These are people who are greedy and they steal. They love money and they use people. I told you, I grew up in a really poor neighborhood. I grew up uh, surrounded with a great deal of poverty. And there were some people there that really profited from the poverty of others. And they would have exorbitant loans and high interest rates and ridiculous requirements. And they would prey on those who were poor and in desperate situations. That's, That's unrighteous and rich. There's also people that are unrighteous and poor. I grew up along in an area that had a lot of those people. They would drink all their money. They would gamble all their money. They would spend all their money on drugs. I still knew families that literally couldn't make their mortgage, but they were driving really nice brand new expensive cars because they would go out and just spend all their money on sort of unnecessary things without taking care of necessary things. So there are some people who are unrighteous and rich. There are some people who are unrighteous and poor. There are some people who are righteous and rich. There are some people who are righteous and poor. And if we fall into the thinking of the culture that one category is good and the other category is bad, we're not thinking biblically because we're not thinking in all the categories. So here's the thing. I don't care if you're rich. I don't care if you're poor. I just want you to be righteous because I love you. Whatever you make, I want you to make it in a way that honors the Lord. However you spend it and give it, I want it to be in a way that honors the Lord. And I grew up in a family that was poor. I know some people who are very rich. I know people that are righteous. I know people that are unrighteous. I could care less about your poverty or your riches. I care a lot about your righteousness or your unrighteousness. But I would ask you to consider your own heart today and say, which category am I in? Am I broke because I'm foolish? Am I rich because I've taken advantage of people? Am I rich because the Lord has blessed me and I don't deserve it, but I'm gonna be generous with it? Am I poor, but I do love the Lord and I don't think I'm here because of folly or sin in my life? What category are you in? The reason these two people are gonna get along, and I don't wanna give the story away, they will actually really get along by the end of the book. um, they, They are both righteous. You get that? Poor and rich, but they're both righteous. They both love and serve the Lord. So that's the great story of the great man, Boaz. So we've got a lovely lady, Ruth. We've got a great guy, Boaz, and here they are meeting. And they meet at his place of employment. They meet at his company. And what we see is that he becomes for her a safe person. So we'll read this, it's lengthy. Then Boaz said to Ruth, so he speaks to her. You guys need to know this. How you start matters, amen? (laughs) Right, ladies? How you start matters. So like the first recorded words in the history of the world, it's Adam singing to his wife because a guy with a guitar always has an advantage. So he (laughs) sings to his wife in the Hebrew, it's a love poem. And here Boaz is gonna speak to Ruth for the first time. So if, if this is like a short film, all of a sudden here's Ruth, you know, and it's a dark day and she's working hard and she's very sweaty and she's dirty and she's out in the field and she's been laboring and she's all pitted out and her hair's up in a ponytail and, and here comes Boaz, the owner of the business and he's gonna talk to her. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing down to the ground. This is an ancient form of humility and honor. This is like in some Eastern cultures when you bow, it's just an issue of respect. And said to him, why have I found favor? There it is, grace. She's saying, I know God's gonna be gracious to me. I met Boaz, God's grace comes through Boaz. That you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner, you don't owe me anything. Story continues, but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, the Lord repay you for what you have done, a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes. God answered my prayer, here's my grace. My Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Some of you have had some very painful relationships because you have entrusted yourself to people that are not safe. People live on a scale safe to dangerous. Everybody lives on that scale. Some people are very, very, very safe. Some people are very, very, very dangerous. And there are people on that continuum at every point along the way. The key is for you and I to ask, am I a safe person for others? And then to ask, am I picking safe people to entrust myself to? True or false, Ruth is at a point that she's vulnerable. She's very vulnerable. So she needs to be very wise in choosing someone who's safe. And she chooses Boaz. And so I wanna talk about safe people. And if you love notes, you're welcome. Here's nine things for you, okay? Nine. God has a list of 10. I've just got a little list of nine here. Uh, Nine things that denote a safe person. Number one, safe people understand the Father heart of God. He looks at her, do you remember what he called her? My daughter. When God looks at Ruth, here's how he sees her. That's my girl. That's my little girl. That's my daughter. That's my daughter. Safe people look at you with the father's heart. When Boaz looks at her, he says, oh, that's God's daughter. What he doesn't see is non-virgin, single, broke, homeless, vulnerable woman, gleaning in my field, utterly dependent on me, vulnerable. Instead, what he sees is God's daughter. That's different, amen? So his, and men, you need to know that we need to have the Father's heart. Even if you don't have the Father's age, you need to have the Father's heart, especially for women who are vulnerable, okay? But we all need to have the Father's heart. So safe people have the Father's heart It's interesting in, um, I wrote it down here, in Matthew chapter nine, verse 22, there's a woman who is suffering and Jesus comforts her and cares for her and he looks at her and he calls her my daughter. Jesus is a single man, right? Boaz is a type of Jesus. Boaz is a good man. Jesus comes as the God man. Boaz looks at her and says, I see you with the father's heart. Jesus looks at a woman and says, I see you with the father's heart. Number two, safe people um, care about our safety. What he says is, stay in my field, don't go to another field. You know why? It's not safe over there. That guy who owns that business, if you go to his field, what he does to you or what the guys who work to him do for you, it may not be good. See, Boaz is the kind of guy who says, okay, here at my company, we pray for each other. And every Tuesday we do a Bible study. And when people come to our company that are customers or clients or employees or contractors, we treat them in a certain way. Here's our ethic. We believe God's word. We go above and beyond what the law says. And we wanna treat people with the love of God. And Boaz is saying, that's how we do it here at my company. But over there, that's not how they do it. And you don't know this, Ruth, but it's dangerous over there. So just stay right here where you can be safe. I want you to be safe. Safe people care about our safety. They help keep us out of harm's way. Number three, safe people introduce us to other safe people. What he says is, I've got some other women that work for me, maybe even some that are gleaning. He says, you'll notice there's some other women here that are part of my company. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be friends with them. I want you to do life with them. I want you to have relationships with them. You need some good, safe women in your life. And I know these women, I can vouch for their character. They're safe women. You can pray with them, you can walk with them, you can entrust yourself to them. They're safe for you. Safe people introduce us to other safe people. Number four, uh, safe people enforce good boundaries. Ruth is determined and decided I belong to God. And so I'm not going to be intimately involved with any man, right? So she's abiding by God's rules. Boaz comes along and he says, just so you know, the young guys here at the company, because you're the new gal, they were all asking about you. And I told them, if you put a hand on her, I'll chop it off. That's basically what he says, (laughs) right? Don't put any hands on her. That can be in an intimate way. This could also be in an angry way. If they think that she's doing something wrong, sometimes they could rough up a woman or someone who was gleaning, hey, you're cutting into the profits, you're supposed to be over there, not over here, you got into the wrong supplies, you're cutting into the inventory and they could get very harsh with her. Either way, what he is saying is, not only am I safe, all of the guys that are with me are safe too. This is a strong leader and a good man. A strong leader and a good man. And what he's saying is, you have good boundaries, I will honor those boundaries, and I will make sure that the other men honor those boundaries as well. How many of you ladies like this guy? How many of you guys, if your daughter brought him home, you'd be like, good day, good day, good day. This is actually one of the, in insofar as I could tell, this might be one of the earliest, most ancient anti-harassment policies in the workplace just throw it out there. You're welcome. Okay, number five, safe people are generous. He says, when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. You don't have to draw your own water. We'll take care of you. You'll see as the story continues, and I want you to be reading ahead. He's actually very, very, very generous with her. He goes above and beyond what the law requires. And he goes all the way to the point of generosity. Safe people are generous. They're givers, not takers. The world is filled with takers. There are far too few givers. He's generous toward her. Safe people are generous because safe people are like, I care about you more than me. I wanna give to you, not take for me. Are you a generous person? He's a generous person. And here's the thing too. um, If you will be generous, this doesn't just include your finances. Generous people make better spouses because they're givers of their heart, their words, their encouragement, their time, their service. Generous people are better friends because they don't just give their wealth, they give everything, all that they have and all that they are. God is generous. God says it's more blessed to give than receive. And when we are generous, it opens us up to be more like God. And some of you would say, oh, you're trying to get the money out of my pocket. I say, no, I'm trying to get the idol out of your heart. that that if you can be a generous person, this will be your whole life. What you're gonna see with Boaz, true or false, he's generous with his wealth. Is he generous with his words? He is. Is he gonna be generous with his friends? Yeah. Is he gonna be generous with his possessions? He's generous with everything. He's actually gonna pray for her. He's a generous person who just gives. That includes his wealth, but that's far beyond his wealth. He just gives because he wants her to flourish. May we all aspire by God's grace to just be generous people. That when somebody needs a kind word, we're generous to give it. When somebody needs help, we're generous to serve. When somebody's down on their luck, we're generous to provide. And generous people, they make the best employers, the best employees, the best husbands, the best wives, and the best friends. The story continues. Uh, Safe people encourage our character. He prays for her and he says, the Lord repay you for what you have done. He says, you know what? I've heard about the way you treated your mother-in-law. I heard about your great faith that you left your religion to worship the real God. You left Moab to come to Bethlehem. You left your family and friends, and you came to a people in a place that you did not know. I've heard all about you. And he says, I'm praying that the Lord repays you for your faithfulness. He's encouraging her character. What he's saying is, I know it's not easy, but what you've done is right. And I'm really, really proud of you. And I know this is a long, hard road, but you're doing the right thing and God will honor and bless that. And we're praying for God's provision for you. That means a lot to her, don't you think? How many of you, one encouragement literally takes the tank from E to F and you're good to go for a really long time, right? He's encouraging of her character. Number seven, safe people pray that we would flourish. He, he says, a full reward be given to you by the Lord. What he's saying is, I'm praying for God's provision. I'm going to help answer that prayer by being part of his provision. So you need to know, sometimes we pray and sometimes we help answer our own prayer. You can't just look at your spouse and say, oh, I hope that someday you feel loved. You're like, How about I do some of that too, right? You can't just look at your kids and say, oh, I hope someday you have a prayer partner, go pray with them, right? It's good to pray. And sometimes God wants us to be the answer to the prayer, which is why he has us pray to change our heart to then be in his will. And he's praying, I pray that God would provide for you. And part of the way that God is going to provide for her is through Boaz. Safe people pray for our flourishing. They want us to do well. They're not jealous. They're not petty. They're not critical. They don't have to always be one step ahead of us or sort of winning. They're okay with us flourishing. Number eight, safe people provide comfort and kindness. Ruth says, you have comforted me and spoken kindly. You've comforted me. So far in the book, we have not seen anyone comfort Ruth. Her husband died, she has no children. She left her home and her parents and her religion. She has been hurting and no one has been comforting. And Boaz walks up to her at his business, speaks kindly to her, and you gotta see. He's a guy who's dressed up, looks good. He's going out to survey his company. This is like somebody that's got a bunch of franchises and they're coming in to sort of look at the local affiliate and to run a report on how business is going. And there's Ruth, covered in sweat, covered in dirt, working hard all day. And Boaz says, you know what? I'm going to stop right here because this is a divine appointment. This is God's providence. God put you in front of me to bless you, to encourage you, to comfort you, to speak kindly to you. Did he have to do that? No, but he did that. Don't overlook the people that God puts in front of you. Don't overlook the opportunity to comfort them and to speak kindly to them. And she she says it kind of in awe, like you have comforted me. What she's saying is, I have this tremendous burden and you have helped take that burden off of my shoulders and you've spoken kindly to me. How many of you moved to this city or this region and like Ruth, you didn't know anybody. You didn't know who you would meet. You're hoping you'd meet some pleasant people. And if you meet someone who actually cares about you and loves you and is concerned about you and wants to comfort you and speak kindly to you, especially when you're the new person in town, that's a huge blessing. So let's just covenant Trinity Church that when we see the moving van pull into our neighborhood, we remember the story of Boaz and say, I gotta go say hi and speak kindly and comfort and get to know them and see how I could be a source of God's grace to them because that may be a divine appointment. Number nine, safe people point us to God as our safe place. What Boaz doesn't say is, I'm your safe place, move into my house, be my girlfriend, let's do this together. He points her to God um, as her safe place. He says it this way, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's this great analogy. Um, Just outside of my office in the back of the church, I've got this big palm tree and right out the window uh, is the palm tree and carved out of the palm tree, there's this little nook and nest. And there's this prolific uh, bird couple that keeps having babies. <laughs> they, I mean, I got more, if, if you want, there's a lot of eggs up there that keep having babies. And what's really interesting is I'll see the, uh, the nest and then there's the mother and then there's the baby bird and what's the mother doing with the baby bird? Wing over it. Safety, protection, provision, care, comfort. What Boaz is saying is he's saying, you know, welcome to my business, this is a good nest for you. But ultimately what you need is you're you're like a, a, a brand new baby bird, you just met the Lord. You're spiritually just a little baby and you're vulnerable. And so God is going to be the wing that shadows you and covers you and protects you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? How many of you guys are like, oh, he should teach a class for guys, right? I mean, he's, he's really, he's really. Here's what I want you men to understand. I didn't have this in my notes, but it comes to mind. Is Boaz tough? He runs a business, trains the guys, tells them to keep their hands to themselves and tells them they're not allowed to touch the woman. He's tough. Is Boaz tender? Yes, real men are tough and tender tough and tender. If he was only tough, he would have been tough with Ruth. That would have not comforted her or been kind toward her. If he's only tender, then the guys would have abused Ruth. He needed to be tough for her and tender with her. All men, take note. Be tough for your wife, your woman. Be tender with your woman. Amen, ladies? You want your men to be safe by protecting you and providing for you emotionally. He's a man who's tough and he's tender. He's tough and he's tender. Some of you men, you're too tough. Some of you men, too tender. Old men should seek to be tough and tender. Boaz is a man, he's a great man because he's tough and he's tender. So in closing, let me ask you two questions. Are you a safe person for others? Number two, how are you at choosing safe people to be in relationship with? Ruth is going to choose to be in relationship with Boaz because she's a safe person and he's a safe person. And as you read the story, it works out pretty good for them both. And let me say this in closing as we transition to our time of worshiping. Uh, First, let me say thank you. When my family moved here about a year ago, we didn't know anyone. We kind of felt like Naomi and Ruth. Difficult season, hard transition, following God's will, who are we gonna meet, what is God gonna do? And we have met some very safe people here. And this has been a good move for our family, and we love you, and we find the Trinity Church to be a comforting and kind place, and we hope that it always remains so. So just on behalf of my family, I wanna say that we love you, we appreciate you, and that this has been a a really, a a great, uh, a great place for our family. I would say um, safe people and I hope it's a safe place for you. Number two, as we read this little love story, it's in the Bible because it's part of a really big love story. So our tagline for the series is a big little love story. So this little love story is part of God's big love story. And when you see Boaz, he is something pointing to Jesus. And when we see Ruth, she's something pointing to the church and God's people. And the truth is that the whole earth belongs to the Lord. This is his. And, and you and I, we Moabites. We come from a bad family. She descended from Lot, we descend from Adam, bad family. Furthermore, she was spiritually confused. We all start off very spiritually confused and she came empty handed and we come empty handed. And all that we have on the earth is really just what we've gleaned from God's field. We didn't make this world. We didn't provide its provision, God did. So when we read the story, we gotta say, okay, I'm a lot like Ruth. I come spiritually confused from the wrong family, empty handed, and I am just sort of gleaning from what is the Lord's and, and he is providing for me. And then the story continues, and I don't wanna give it all away, but from Ruth and Boaz comes someone named Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes to the earth about a 1,000 years after this couple, and he literally comes to his field, the planet Earth. It all belongs to him. And he pronounces a blessing over his people, and then he approaches those of us who are not his people. And he speaks to us with words of comfort and kindness. He loves us, he forgives us. He literally puts his wing over us and he ultimately lets us be blessed because of his sacrifice in our place for our sins. And so the whole story of the Bible is that Jesus is like a glorious Boaz and that we are all like Ruth and needy Moabites and that Jesus comes and he is the one who is our safe place, amen? And so I want you to know that ultimately all of this story, it's pushing and pointing toward the coming of the Lord Jesus. And that through this man and woman, I mean, you can't believe how cool this story is gonna get as we continue into it, comes Jesus. So the whole point of the story ultimately is Jesus. And Boaz is a little picture of Jesus for us all. So in a moment, we're gonna partake of communion, remembering the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, that Jesus literally pays for us the debt of our sin that as we partake of community, remember that all that we have and all that we are is a gift given us from the Lord. And as we sing and we celebrate and we rejoice, we remember that just as um, Boaz's employees called out to him, bless you, bless you. So in worship, we cry out to the Lord. So Father, thank you for this opportunity now to come together as your people. We've opened your word and we ask now, Lord, that you would open our hearts, that we could sing the praises of Jesus, that we could savor the presence of Jesus. Uh, Father God, I thank you so much for this great, amazing, epic, unbelievable love story. Lord God, I pray for us men that we would learn from the example of Boaz, that we would learn to be tough when we need to be tough, that we would learn to be tender when we need to be tender. Lord, I thank you for the great example of Ruth. I pray for us all to learn from the example of Ruth, but especially for the women. She was a woman who was in a difficult circumstance, but she decided that she would trust you and proceed forward boldly and seek your favor and your grace and your blessing and you provided for her. Lord God, I pray for us that we would learn to be increasingly safe people for others, that we would be the kind of people that when they meet us, they would say as Ruth did toward Boaz, you have comforted me and you've spoken kindly toward me. You've been a source of blessing and life and encouragement for me. Lord God, as well, I pray for us that we would be good in choosing friends and relationships that are safe with safe people, that we would not foolishly entrust ourselves to those who might do harm, and Lord, I pray for the Trinity Church that we would be a safe place, that this would feel like an extension of the wing of the Lord under whose presence we take refuge. And Lord, as we come to partake of communion, and we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, as we come to sing and celebrate, we come seeking your favor and your grace. And Lord God, as Ruth sought your people in your presence, we come as your people to enjoy your presence in your good name we pray, amen.